We're doing the Messianic prophecies. How does Jesus uniquely fulfill prophecy? Go to the next slide for a second, kind of a quick review. We need to justify why we're going to spend a number of weeks on Messianic prophecies. Why even talk about the topic, okay? As you remember in our intro a couple of weeks ago, we laid out the case that there is really something that we're going to get out of it. One is that this is really going to give us evidence, as we've been searching for evidence when we did the Da Vinci Code series and other series, that there is some reliability to the Bible. I told you that when you're trying to analyze the Bible, you can look for external clues. Don't always look for internal clues, but things in the Bible that it says that point to the fact that it must have been uniquely inspired by God, that there's no other way some of the stuff could have been contained in there, unless you're going to imagine that it was rewritten later on, and we know from historical text that that didn't happen. We also know that it establishes Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. Messianic prophecy points uniquely to one person. You'll see a little bit of that evidence tonight. And, of course, we said that prophecy is often ignored by some churches, and we want to be faithful and cover all of the topics that we can. So this is an area that I think we can go into. But if I could summarize it like this, looking at Messianic prophecy gives us confidence that Jesus really is the only true way to God. That's the reason we're doing it. It really is one of those things that you just turn the pages and you're amazed at what you find. Okay, we, just to review real quickly, we kind of identified where Messianic prophecy comes from. We identified, one, that prophets are sent by God. Two, prophets were received with faith and reverence. Okay, that's what was supposed to happen and always happened. That was what was supposed to happen. Prophecy has God as its author. Prophecy is from the Spirit, and prophecy can be tested. And that's kind of what we're going to spend a lot of our time on is the last one. Testing prophecy, making sure that it is a real prophecy, and also then trying to figure out what does it mean that's a prophecy. How do, if you test it, what, what can we take from that? What evidence does that give us about Christianity and about Jesus? All right, I gave you a definition of a messianic prophecy. The first three up here are the definition that we're going to use, and then I add a couple to them. Here's the first one. It must be a prophecy which involves the unveiling of a future that no mere human foresight or wisdom could have guessed it. So we agreed when we did our introduction, not just guesswork, it's got to be something that's pretty far out there that you couldn't have done on your own. No other way to have figured out the future that no human could have done that. Number two, you got to have sufficient detail in the prediction so that you just rule out guesswork or just somebody being very, very smart. Okay? We want something that has detail that nobody short of rewriting the Bible after the fact, could have figured this out, okay? No matter how smart you are. Number three, we want a lapse of time between the time the prophecy is made and the time it, it gets fulfilled so that the prophet himself is not setting up things that either they could have controlled or known about in their own time. What we're trying to do here is tighten the screws, basically, to put it in a summary to make sure that there's no monkey business going on. If somebody in the Old Testament is saying something's going to happen, we want it to be so far beyond the possible that there's no other way other than God intervening in the person and telling them the prophecy. Okay? I distinguish this last time from people who are these people trying to predict future events. Sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. Biblical prophecy, never wrong. Next slide. I added a couple just to even ratchet it up a little higher. Here's what I consider a higher test. Most people don't adopt it, but I'd throw it in there. I want proof that the prophecy was recorded in a manner that was not altered. I actually want to look at the documents. I want to know that there's been no alteration to the Bible after the fact. I just want to know that. 
I want to have somebody present that in a courtroom and say, show me that there's been no alteration to the text. And number five, I, want to, I don't like it if Jesus is able to read the text himself and then go do those things and then say, aha, you see, I fulfilled the prophecy. I want to almost take out the prophecies that Jesus could have fulfilled just by reading the scriptures. An example would be if there was a prophecy that said, you know, he did the following things at the temple, that he would go into the temple and do the following things and say, you see, I fulfilled the prophecy. Now, an example of a prophecy he couldn't have fulfilled on his own is like where he's going to be born. Like he couldn't have done, there's no way he could have done that on his own. Okay, so I'm looking at a very high test. Again, in plain English, why are we doing all this? Because you're going to see in the next few minutes, this is going to get very theological. It's going to get very difficult to understand in a way. And we're going to go into it in more detail than I know some of you want to. Part of it is Ben's fault. We're going to talk about that in a minute. You know, that's what happens when you go get a master's in theology, you know, and graduate, by the way, last week. Congratulations, Ben. Yes. But when you get this high and mighty degree, you start asking questions that are really difficult to answer. And here in English is the thing I want to say. The reason we're going to go into this in so much detail, and the reason we're going to spend so many minutes going through these theological somersaults, is because I want you to understand that this is a crucial thing to so many people who don't believe in Jesus. And it's also a great way to say, look, I don't care what you believe, but if you can explain to me how somebody can predict 700 years in advance where Jesus is going to be born and what he's going to do, you explain it to me. It's almost like you can shift the burden when you're dealing with somebody who's got difficult, you know, they've got biblical problems, they've got theological problems, they don't understand how God can do this or why God does that or I don't believe in this. Look, let's just break it down into some things that are objective. You explain this to me. You tell me how Isaiah could predict these things. You tell me how... Zachariah could predict these things. Just you, if you find a better answer, I'm willing to listen to it. That's why we're doing this topic. Because it's very powerful in dealing with people who, in other ways, maybe, don't want to look at Jesus. Okay? And particularly, you're going to see in a moment that we're going to dive into looking at Judaism because we can't peel these two topics apart. We can't use Jewish text to predict the Messiah without really dealing with Judaism as well. Okay. I just talked about, for a moment, the odds of Jesus fulfilling prophecy. And this is why I say this gives us this amazing way to say to somebody, you explain this to me. Look at this. Now, I cite at the bottom of the screen here Peter Stoner and his book that was published in 1969 on page 109 to tell you that these statistics, I didn't make them up. And I didn't just cite them because Christians say that they're out there. This is a real deal. This guy's a mathematician and he calculated these odds. The odds that Jesus could have fulfilled eight prophecies, and by the way, you know that there's over 300 of them that he fulfills. But the odds that he calculates just eight, that he can actually fulfill eight of them, according to this mathematician, one chance, that number is actually 100 million billion. So it's 100 million billions is the chance that Jesus, so many years later, could have fulfilled eight prophecies. That's a, I don't really understand that number. It's a very big number. I'm not sure how mathematicians can calculate this stuff. You know, Basically, the odds, according to the mathematician, was if you covered the entire state of Texas with silver dollars up to about here, 
and you asked a blind man to reach down and just pick the red one, <laughs> that would be the odds of Jesus fulfilling eight prophecies. That's the way they explained it in tangible terms. Look at the next one. The odds that Jesus could fulfill 48 prophecies are one chance in a trillion, 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 trillion. Which a mathematician explains as more atoms in a hundred billion universes. Okay? Again, I don't understand how this has such a big number that a mathematician can figure that out, but maybe that's why I got a D in math. And I just didn't get it. Apparently somebody gets it, or they're all making fun of us, but that's 12 trillions, okay? It's a huge number, but I guess the point is pretty simple. The odds that Jesus could have fulfilled 300 prophecies are what the title of our talk is all about. He uniquely fulfills the prophecies. In his book, The Case for Christ, Lee Strobel has a chapter on messianic prophecies, and he says that this is the fingerprint evidence. This is the evidence that shows that Jesus is the unique Messiah because, as you guys all know, everybody has different fingerprints and you can lift them and figure out who did what based on their fingerprints. Only one person in history could have fulfilled all 300 prophecies and that really is Jesus leaving his fingerprint to say, I am the Messiah. Actually, if you look at this, it's not even possible that one person could have accidentally done it because there's never been that many people alive ever. So it's more than just that one person accidentally fulfilled 300 prophecies, the odds that one person would fulfill 300 prophecies would be, we'd need more than billions of universes in every atom in them just to have 300 of them. So even if you only fulfilled eight prophecies, which you're going to see, we're going to go through at least eight, that's more than there have ever been people on the earth. So Jesus didn't accidentally trip through eight of them. He must have been divinely sent just to fulfill those eight. Okay. I told you that we can't really deal with the Messianic prophecies until we kind of wrestle with Judaism a little bit. Here's where Ben really tripped us up a few weeks ago. When we first started talking about Messianic prophecies, I was ready to start moving right in and saying, here's an example of a Messianic prophecy. Look how amazing this prophecy is. And Ben raised his hand and said, wait a minute. I have a question. How do you know that it's a Messianic prophecy? How do we know that? And... This led me to study a lot more books than I ever wanted to on the subject. But here's some things that I found that I think we need to deal with in fairness. There's a whole body out there of Jewish scholars that object to us using the Old Testament to justify Jesus as the Messiah. Here are some of their objections. If you look at some of them, here's what they're going to be prepared to say. Number one, you don't know what you're talking about. Now, that probably applies to most Christians all the time anyway. <laughs> That's just like a general objection to Christianity. Like most Christians, if they say something, it's because they've heard it in a sermon somewhere or somebody told them that. They don't even know where to find it in the Bible and they wouldn't justify it. And if they were pressed hard, like I said, on an objection, they'd freeze up. So... That's a good objection to any time a Christian is saying anything. You don't know what you're talking about because it's probably true in some respect. Number two, that verse is not talking about Jesus. The reason that's a pretty powerful objection is because if you flip through the entire Old Testament, nowhere does it say the word Jesus. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find it saying the Messiah. You'd be hard-pressed to find anything that even relates to it. And this is the basis of Ben's question because this is somewhat confusing. Number three, the verse actually is not even a messianic prophecy. 
The objection there is you guys are taken out of context. That was a might not even be a prophecy, but if it was a prophecy, it was a prophecy about something that was going on in Israel, it doesn't say anything about the Messiah in there. Number four, Jesus never fulfilled any of the real messianic prophecies. What is a real messianic prophecy according to a Jewish scholar? Well, the Messiah was supposed to usher in an era of peace. Look around the world. doesn't look very peaceful to us. If you're looking for the Jewish Messiah that's being prophesied about, if he's even being prophesied about, he hasn't, he just, Jesus doesn't look like he comes close to fulfilling that Messiah. There doesn't seem to be any worldwide rule under the Messiah going on right now. What's going on? Number five, a very common verse, or I'm sorry, a very common objection that's thrown out is if you read that verse in Hebrew, you would know that you've taken it out of context. Now, that's a great way to stop any Christian in their track, because most Christians never read Hebrew. By the way, most of the Jewish people throwing that out probably also never read Hebrew, okay? But if they did read Hebrew or they went to Hebrew school, they probably haven't read the original text in Hebrew themselves. But it's a great one for Christians because most of us, we're spouting off in English what the pastor said. And if you say, hey, if you read that in Hebrew, you'd know you're taken out of context. Very closely related, number six, you've misinterpreted the Hebrew to make it say what you want it to say. Let me give you an example. When I was in college, I took some comparative religion classes and I also took some just general religious classes for the heck of it to fulfill some extra requirements. I figured... I was interested enough in the subject while I was finishing my major that I would take some religion classes. One of the classes I took was from a very respected New Testament scholar named Ben Hubbard. He was Jewish, but he knew the New Testament better than any Christian I knew. He had a PhD in New Testament studies. I took three classes from Dr. Hubbard. I was fascinated by this guy because here is a guy who knew the New Testament so well that the first time I heard him speak, I was sure he was an evangelical Christian. In fact, in comparative world religions, some of the students started attacking Christianity, and he defended it amazingly well. And I asked him one day, I said, Dr. Hubbard, you know, you know the New Testament so well. Why haven't you ever considered Christianity to be true? And he said, I don't see anything in the New Testament, really, that follows the Jewish tradition. And second of all, I believe that Christians take the Messianic prophecies very much out of context which is what he was saying, you've misinterpreted the Hebrew. I know Hebrew, he would say, and you guys don't quote it correctly. I said, well, give me an example. He said, all right, take the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7. Most of us are probably familiar with it, although you probably don't know the verse. It's the, behold, a virgin shall conceive, and it goes on. He said, take a look at the word virgin. He says that word in Hebrew doesn't mean virgin. That word in Hebrew means young adolescent girl. It doesn't refer to sexuality and chastity. It refers to sexuality in terms of age and ability. In other words, she's a pre-adolescent or a prepubescent girl, young girl. That's what it refers to. He said the Christian church makes a big deal out of this. Look, a virgin will conceive. It was prophesied by Isaiah. He said, I don't believe that it says that. Okay. I had no response I haven't studied Hebrew. I don't know what to say to him. He stopped me dead in my tracks, but I remember all those years ago. I was 19 years old when he threw this out. He told me that the word for virgin, by the way, is batula, not alma or whatever it is that's used in Isaiah. 
That if it had said, if they wanted to say virgin, they would have used that word. But they didn't use that word. So therefore, you guys are just trying to read into it and making something justify your Messiah. Interesting. I couldn't respond. There are people who can respond. And they are responding to these objections. Go to the next slide real fast. I want to throw this up on the screen because we're going to be watching this next week a little bit, this video. It's a guy by the name of Michael Brown. He's also a doctorate in Near Eastern Languages and Literature from New York University. He's taught at Trinity and Fuller. He's written a three-volume book on responding to Jewish objections. The third book, an entire volume, is dedicated to Messianic prophecies. As you go through this book, this one that I just threw out to you, I was just kind of skimming his book, getting ready for tonight. He spends like eight pages explaining why this is a messianic prophecy. Okay? Now next week you're going to see when we kind of show a little bit more about, we're going to move into this topic a little bit more about the difference here. You're going to see Michael Brown in his own words explain his own faith journey from being a young Jewish man to becoming a Christian. Michael Brown right now is probably the leading authority on responding to these Jewish objections. So the quick answer to Ben's question, we're going to see in a second on the next screen, there are some keys to understanding what is and what is not a messianic prophecy. But why am I even bringing this up, this part about Jewish objections? Well, there's a couple things we need to be aware of as a Christian community. Number one, very easily, we could stay at the surface and just say, this is a messianic prophecy, not dig deep enough, and somebody's going to tell us, that's not a messianic prophecy. You're going to see some of the objections that were on the previous screen. Somebody's going to say to you, you know what, that's taken out of context. You read Hebrew, you don't know. And I want to first just equip you with this. There are volumes written on this topic, proving or establishing or at least arguing from a Christian perspective that they are messianic prophecies. The explanation is often more complicated than any of you guys want to know because it deals with the language itself. The explanation often takes pages and pages to respond, but there is a response. The problem is that it's really easy to throw out one of those objections that were on the previous screen, and I'll tell you why. Because right now, there are books being written in the Jewish community that hand you, basically, as a young Jewish believer, here are the objections you should make to Christians and their messianic prophecies. You don't really need to understand the, the objections. Just make some of these objections. It'll stop them dead in their tracks. Okay? So that's something that we should at least be aware of. And in fairness, the second point, the reason we're even covering this, is if we're really going to look for new messianic prophecies, we better be correct. We better be citing them and knowing that they're really there and not relying on what somebody else has said. Okay? I want to hold us to the same level of proof that somebody in a courtroom will be cross-examining you saying, how do you know that? Where does it say that? What does the original language say? Now, I don't think any of us are going to memorize all that stuff, but I want you to know that there is really a resource that goes into it and spells out every one of them and shows us exactly what the prophecies meant and how we're supposed to know what it is. Part of the question we're dealing with and how do we know is a messianic prophecy comes from the fact that you'll be reading a psalm, for example, and it sounds like it's talking about one thing, and all of a sudden there's this like language in there that might fit, might not fit, and then the Christian church says, that was a messianic prophecy. See how Jesus fulfilled it? And the objection is, but it doesn't say that. Go to the next slide. Let's look at those hallmarks. Here's some things to look at. Messianic prophecies are not clearly identified as such in the Bible. 
If you open up your Bible and go to the Old Testament and you read something, it'll not, it, there's nothing going to say, and the future Messiah will be like this. It doesn't say it. Nothing where it says, and in the future, all of a sudden, I mean, oftentimes, the prophet is talking and you don't even know that he's switched into the future. It sounds like he's just continuing the same sentence. One of the problems for us looking for messianic prophecies is that the word Messiah in the Hebrew, the Moshe, means anointed one. It was often used to refer to David. It was often referred to Solomon. So it was always referred to the anointed king of the Lord. Okay? So we have to look at the context very carefully. Because if there's a king who's going to rule forever and rule the whole world, that doesn't sound like it could be any of the earthly kings. That's our first clue, maybe, that we've stepped into a messianic prophecy. Almost accidentally, we're all saying, wait a minute, that wouldn't make sense. Number two, here's another reason why messianic prophecies are so hard to find. Messianic prophecies develop slowly in Israel's history. You remember that the Israelites at first were looking for their salvation in an earthly king. They were looking for David to save them, Solomon to save them. They wanted King Saul, remember the first king, like, we want a king. They thought their salvation would come in that form, but as the kings after Solomon increasingly disappointed them, more and more and more, they started going back and looking at the prophecies again about how the, the line of David was going to rule forever. Like, what's, what's going on? Our kings are getting worse and worse. Our nation is split. Now we're in captivity. Like, what happened to us ruling? Like, what was that all about? And that was when they started to look back at the same prophecies and realize maybe they weren't talking about David and Solomon and his line immediately. Maybe they were talking about a future hope. So it didn't just, it wasn't like from the day of Abraham's, like newsflash, the Messiah's coming. It wasn't like that. They developed that over time as they started to understand the scriptures better. And isn't that the case with us, by the way? Here's a third one. Biblical prophecies are fulfilled over long periods of time. Here's an example. It was prophesied by Zechariah that Israel would return to the land from its captivity. Well, okay. That began when some of the tribes were allowed to come back in like 5-600 BC. But when was Israel fully restored to the land? 1948. I mean, this prophecy spans like 25-2600 years of time. They began to return to the land sometime after the prophecy was originally made in the Bible, but they weren't restored fully to the land until 1948, until Israel finally became a nation again. Does that mean that God's prophecy wasn't fulfilled? No, it just takes a long period of time sometimes for some of his prophecies. Uh, number four, the prophets saw the Messiah coming on their own immediate time horizon. What that meant is a lot of times a prophet is speaking and he's seeing into the future and he's describing it like it's happening right now. This is a rule of prophecy that we always kind of mistake. I've often poked fun at the fact that in the Bible, in the New Testament, Paul seems to say that Jesus is coming back very soon and he's seeing certain things and he's telling us they're right and I'm like, dude, so much time has passed. Were you wrong? But what's really going on in a lot of times in prophecy is the prophet is able to see future events, but he doesn't know when they're going to happen. He doesn't know if they're happening tomorrow or they're happening in 10,000 years. He just feels that these events are imminent. So he describes them with language that makes them sound like it's going to happen very soon. This happens a lot with Isaiah. 
He seems to be describing future events like they're happening right now. So a lot of the objections to messianic prophecy are like, he's not talking about something that happened in 700 years later. He's talking about some woman who's going to have a baby right there. But would that make sense? It's the objection. Number five, prophecy must be read in its overall context in history. Same thing with Isaiah. We go back to that challenge about, wait a minute, the language doesn't say virgin. But if you read all of Isaiah around that, especially Isaiah chapter 9, you read that whole context around it, Isaiah is saying that a supernatural sign is going to be given to people and it will come from the line of David. And he goes on to give other prophecies about what's going to happen to the future Messiah. Now does it make sense that God would send Isaiah to make a prophecy about some woman who's just having a baby in Israel? He's saying, I'm going to show you a supernatural sign a woman will have a baby. Like, how's that supernatural? A young woman will have a baby. That's not supernatural. So we start to get clues that we've stepped into a messianic prophecy. Next slide. Another clue when we look in the Old Testament is that the future Messiah had two roles. He was to be a priest and a king. The king we know really well because we know that around the time Jesus came, everybody was waiting for an earthly king. We got a, you know, a heavenly king. We know that one really well. We forget that the Messiah in the Old Testament was also supposed to be a priest who bore the sins of his people. And even Jewish scholars seem to overlook this, that Jesus did both. He really did take on the sins of his people. In the Old Testament, the priest's job was to atone for the sins of the nation on Yom Kippur. He was supposed to be the one who entered the Holy of Holies and took the, the sin, basically, representing that and atoned for it. Jesus made that same exact sacrifice on the cross. While being a king, he was also a priest. And that's a unique identifier of the Messiah that a lot of people just kind of look over. That was very important to a messianic understanding to the Jewish people. In fact, around the time that Jesus came, there was a belief that the Messiah would be two people. There would be like two messiahs, one that was a king and one that was a priest. The king to save the nation of Israel and the priest to kind of atone for their sins. But Jesus ended up being both. And finally, over and over and over, the messianic prophecies deal with suffering. They deal with a Messiah who will suffer for his people. In Israel, the king represented his people, not just like their leader, but actually stood in their place, much like Jesus kind of stands in the place of all of us and suffers for us. When you put together these seven pieces, they're clues. Like I said, there's no place in the Bible that starts off like you know, a little heading in your nice little NIV that says, a messianic prophecy for you, and then you get to read it. Oftentimes you're reading something that doesn't sound like it has anything to do with Jesus, and then all of a sudden somebody's telling you, hey, that's a messianic prophecy. And you're like, how do you know? These are the clues that you look for. That it really deals with atonement and suffering. That the kingdom can't be one of this earth because it's supposed to have no end or reign forever. That something in the text itself is out of context. That we are asking for a supernatural sign and the answer that's being given just can't be what it was supposed to be. Okay. There are prophecies we're going to be looking at in the next couple weeks. Ones that actually predict that Jesus will be crucified before crucifixion was invented. Ones that predict that people are going to actually cast lots for his clothing. 
I mean, look, if you're Jesus and you're on the cross, are you causing anybody to cast lots for your clothing right there in front of you? Are you thinking, hey, guys, you guys could really help me out right now by fulfilling this last prophecy while I'm dying. Could you guys, like, gamble for my clothes? It's out of his control. Some people have predicted that, you know what, maybe the disciples knew the prophecy and wrote that into the Gospels. Like, it didn't really happen. Like, Jesus was dying, and they decided, let's get him to fulfill another prophecy. Let's write in the book, in our Gospel, that they cast lots for his clothing. And then say, therefore, he fulfilled another prophecy. Gospels were written 20, 30 years after Jesus died. So the church was kind of on its way. And if they were publishing stuff in the first editions of the Gospels that somebody could criticize, you probably would have heard a huge uproar about it. That these people who claim to be, you know, the right way and the good way, all these things, are, are actually making up stuff to support their claims. Ironically, we never hear about that. You know, most of the time, the things that are in the Bible, you think, like, why would anybody even write that in there? You know? It's like they're trying to be overly honest, overly open about things, as opposed to, like, making stuff up after the fact. If somebody wrote this hundreds of years before it happened, again, we go back to those odds again. So that's the kind of thing you have to look at when you say this. Is It's not so much that we can, with hindsight, of course, look back and say, wow, that really does fit Jesus, especially since they read that to me on Easter or on Good Friday and told me how close it was. It almost has to be you on your own have to pick up this text and look at it and go, well, what else could it be? Give me another plausible explanation. You either believe that God is lying, that his prophecies don't come true, which, again, if you're dealing with a Jewish objection, that's a great way to go. Like, so God's a liar? He's just making a prophecy that not come true? Or is this prophecy going to come true later? Like some other guy is going to show up on the screen who's going to like kind of be purist for transgressions? Like it sounds like we already had one. Yeah. I don't understand what they're waiting for. That's a, it's a good question. Let's cover that and we'll kind of, that will be a good way to close this off. One of the things you have to put yourself in the position of, and next week when we watch this kind of short video on it, you'll see what I'm talking about. You have to understand where a Jewish person is coming from when they approach this topic. First of all, there are four or five main denominations of Judaism. I would venture to say that only two of them really believe in a God of future consequence, like that has something to do with like end times in their own life. I mean, let's start with American statistics. 50% of Jewish people don't even believe in God. That's the first thing you got to start with. So now we're dealing with those who do. Of those that do, they're divided into five different camps, like Hasidic, uh, Orthodox, Reform. Uh, there's one that's even that's even beyond reform. That's even more liberal. You know, some of those more liberal ones, like Reconstructionist reform, and those, they actually believe that like God put the Jewish people on Earth to do good things for mankind, and that a Jewish person's responsibility is to bring peace through tolerance. That's really the goal. They're not thinking about heaven. In other words. They're not thinking about a future Messiah or a future Savior. They're not thinking actually about the atonement of their sins. If you ask most religious Jewish people, and even non-religious, like what atones for sin, they say, we have the day of Yom Kippur, we, you know, our sins are atoned for on that day. And if you ask them, like, well, why is sin even need to be atoned for? They're just like, because God commands it. And that's what's really hard when you come to this subject is, I didn't want to look at this perspective. I just want to go like, here's a Messianic prophecy, here's how Jesus fulfills it, let's move on. <laughs> But the, the thing I'm finding that's so difficult to do that is because if we're going to be really people of integrity to know and have studied the subject right, 
we can't ignore that there's a whole group of people out there who object and say, you're misquoting and you're taking it out of context. If I'm sitting in the courtroom and I'm saying, messianic prophecy, answer, messianic prophecy, answer, look, billion, billion, trillion, trillion, there for Jesus is God. I have to anticipate that someone will stand up and go, objection, Your Honor, there's actually a whole group of people that don't even believe this stuff, and I'd like to bring in evidence that he's actually misquoting the text. I'm not saying that we're going to be versed in answering all the objections, because like I said, there's volumes written on it. But I want us to at least know, and as Ben raised, that it isn't so simple of a matter to open up the Old Testament and go, you see it says he'll be born in Bethlehem, he was born in Bethlehem, bingo, I got one. Because the first objection is, okay, Bethlehem is cited, for example, but the next objection is something like, well, wait a minute, it doesn't say who will be born in Bethlehem. You know, it doesn't say that it'll even be a king, it doesn't say Jesus, it doesn't say a Messiah, it just says he, like who's he? And that's why we want to address that. Another point you have to understand is from the Jewish perspective, they're even divided about, is a Messiah coming? Because when they read this, he, they don't all assume that that means the Messiah is coming. A lot of them are like, the Old Testament was written for the Old Testament times, in other words. The Jewish scriptures were written to tell people about what was going on back then. The he, if we understand it or not, was referring to somebody back then. So I could read this to somebody and they could say, no. You know, it's talking about something that happened. Now, you might not know what it is, but that doesn't mean it's a future prophecy. It's talking about something that happened then. So it's a different perspective. The last point I want to make about that is if you open up the Jewish scriptures, and that's what we're going to cover a little bit next week, what Michael Brown's video presentation will talk about is they don't read the Bible the way we do, which is just open up the Bible and read. The way they read the Bible is there's the scripture in the middle of the page, and all around it is commentary about what this means. So you're not left to your own devices to read something by itself. They have a, like three verses and then like pages of commentary about what the three verses are about. So if you're studying the Jewish scriptures, like even if you are religious, which is a you know, 50% chance, even if you're in part of those denominations that really believe that God is real and acting and he's going to do something in the future and you're waiting for some future prophecy, you're probably one of those people who's religious enough to be reading your scriptures and your scriptures have commentary all around them telling you, that what this really means is, and then you just kind of believe that. So to go to somebody and just say, hey, you know what? Jesus fulfills your messianic prophecy. You're like, dude, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't read Hebrew. You don't know what the commentary says. You're just some guy sitting in a church whose pastor told him that this is about Jesus, and you believed him. And that's not far from the truth, unfortunately, for Christians. I mean, if I was going to present this topic in a half-hour discussion at church, that's about how deep we would get. Everybody would walk out, clapping their hands, and thinking they were armed to go take on the whole thing on the battlefield. Because somebody would say, you know, Matthew says that he will be called a Nazarene, and that fulfills prophecy. Did you know that in the entire Old Testament, the word Nazarene doesn't even appear? So how does Matthew say he will be called a Nazarene and therefore he fulfilled the prophecy when the word doesn't even appear in the Old Testament? Answer that one, Christian, and the whole witnessing effort falls apart. Now, is Matthew mistaken? Is he quoting things out of context? Is he inventing things? The volume goes into all these explanations of what Matthew was really talking about. I just want you to be aware, because partly because Ben made us do this, <laughs> that there is another side to it and there is a way to address it but that's going to be difficult. And that's why there's people like Michael Brown writing these books specifically in the hopes that Jewish people will stumble upon them. And actually, the video we're going to watch next week is about Michael Brown writing a prophecy Bible for Jewish people to help with the evangelism of Jewish people because he's trying to diffuse this issue of how they read the scriptures. He's saying the way that our Bible is set up. 
is not the way theirs is, so we need to set one up the way theirs is to show them something like Isaiah 53, which is totally omitted in some places or just you know discarded or they don't study it. Or it's got all this commentary around it to rebut it. He wants to write a Bible that says like, here's the prophecy, here's the objection, here's the rebuttal to the objection. There's a great story in Case for Christ about a person who was just deciding on their own to study all the different religions in the world. He was Jewish, but he decided there's no way I could believe in Jesus because that's just the kookiest religion. And he started studying all the different religions. He went through Buddhism and Hinduism, and he actually tried to believe in all these different things. He says he met some Christian missionaries on the street one day, and they told him, like, so you believe in Buddhism? And he's like, absolutely. And they asked him, what do you believe? And he said, I believe that I'm God, that you're God, that God is in all things. We're all God. There's no real, like, you know, anything else. And the Christian guy said to him, well, that's great. If you're God, then maybe you could create a rock. And he says, oh, sure, I could do that. And he, like, holds out his hand. And the Christian goes, I don't see anything. He says, well, I created a rock. It's right there in my hands. You just can't see it, but I can see it. You know, and the Christian guy says to him, well, that's the difference between God and you, is that if God created a rock, we'd probably all be able to see it. You know? He started thinking about that, and it said it made sense to him that all this esoteric baloney about everyone's a God, and God's in all things, and God's all places, and all this stuff, he started to realize that maybe there needed to be an objective standard. And that's what led him, for the first time, to start to study the Messianic prophecies. Because he thought, if, is there something in my Jewish scriptures that tells me what the truth is. And he accepted the challenge of one of these Christian evangelists, just read the scriptures. He said, read them on your own. Read them in Hebrew. I don't care. I'm not going to tell you what they say. You figure out what they say. And he asked him to read Isaiah 53 and to struggle with it. He said, as I read that verse and those verses, I knew right away who they were talking about. So I thought the first thing, those Christians, man, they rewrote our Bible in English. So he called his mother and asked her to send him a, a Bible in Hebrew. And he read both the English translation directly in the official Jewish scriptures, and he read the Hebrew himself to figure out what Isaiah 53 said. And he still struggled with the fact that it was identical to his English Bible that the Christian guy had given him, and it still sounded like it was talking about Jesus. He started researching the other messianic prophecies, and in, he says in his own words, what I was so scared about was that I was going to have to face the fact that this might be true. He was going to have to face ostracism, maybe. He was going to have to face a difficult decision about who Jesus was. He might have to give up his life of sex and rock and roll and drugs and all the stuff that he was on that he said that was his life at the time. And clean up his act because if Jesus really was true, he had some real problems. Now he's a Christian pastor. I guess the only thing I can say is that these words also have power on their own. And when people read them, I believe that the Holy Spirit speaks to them. So maybe in all of our wisdom and all of our billions and trillions odds and mathematicians and everything that we're trying to use. There's also just another piece to them that sometimes when we read God's word by itself the way it is, it on its own is going to stand and the Holy Spirit is going to speak to us. Just like it did to him. Read your own scriptures and realize that the Messiah has already come and that you need to accept him. And that was his testimony. It's unique. It's probably not going to apply to me directly. But consider this. Hopefully we'll be moving off the Jewish objections. And now we're going to deal with just regular Christian or non-Christian objections in America to them. 
same thing. These scriptures have power. You tell me how this is possible. You tell me how this could have happened. You either tell me that we rewrote the Bible, which I can prove to you we didn't, or maybe you've got to grapple with Jesus Christ. That's why we're doing this series. So, so where are we going next? Next week, I do want to just briefly discuss this video um, just to make you aware of this issue with Michael Brown and how he's doing this thing. Uh, and then we're going to kind of move into the actual prophecies beyond just the one that we read tonight to talk about them and figure out, like, all right, let's look at some of these other amazing prophecies. Maybe we can come up with eight so we know that it's a hundred trillion billion or whatever it is. Come up with eight prophecies that he fulfilled. Um, we'll stop dealing with objections and actually just look at the prophecies themselves. Do that. Okay. Cool. Still a little bit of worship and uh, close up for tonight. Go ahead. Lord Jesus, I know that these topics are sometimes either difficult or some of us probably aren't even interested. And uh, I thank you, Lord, for that sometimes because some of us have come to faith without even knowing these things or caring about them. It was enough that you called us or that we heard your voice or that you touched our lives and the Holy Spirit prompted us. So, Lord, for people who have that faith, I thank you because I know that that faith comes from you and from your Holy Spirit. Lord, I'm presenting these because I want people to be equipped. So I ask for retention of the information in our minds. I ask for a willing heart to share with other people um, so that others might come to know you because not everyone, Lord, uh, comes to you with just a simple faith. Many have questions. Many want to argue and debate and really need objective proof sometimes, Lord. And we'd be foolish to think that you don't provide it. So, Lord... Again, forgive us we dwell too much on those type of topics, but Lord, there's a whole world out there that's literally dying without knowing you, and this may be their chance to introduce them to you. Pray tonight, especially for those people who are working within the Jewish community, Lord, to bring them to faith. Lord, just pray uh, for the people who labor tirelessly there uh, to bring your own people back to faith. Pray these things in your name. Amen.